Hi, everyone. Hi, good to see you. This being the last week in um, September, we are going to spend one more day on delusion. One more day. I feel sorry for the Thursday night group, for Sunday. They've probably been talking about delusion constantly and they're sick of it. But we've got one more day of delusion. Um, so my name's Tuere Salah and I want to check and welcome anyone who's new to Sims for the first time. We are going to have a talk night. I'm going to talk about delusion. Because if I'm not mistaken, you have not heard me talk about delusion. You may have been talking about it a lot, but you haven't really heard me talk about it. And so I am going to talk about it for a while. I use this poem by Thich Nhat Hanh because the poem actually points to delusion. It's a weird thing, delusion, is that... Um, we tend to think of ourselves in a one-sided view. So we think of ourselves as um, uh, one part of the equation in life. And what Thich Nhat Hanh is pointing to is that we're actually all of life, everything. So we actually are, if we could begin to see that... Um, we are both the harm that happens in the world and we are the victims of that harm that happens in the world. If we could see ourselves as both, we could begin to see that much of the harm that happens in the world is based out of delusion. It's just based out of greed, hatred, and delusion itself. This whole thing we've been talking about for the last three months it's not any one particular person. It feels like it's a particular person or a particular thing or a particular group of people. And if we could just get those people righteous, we could get rid of all this harm. But in reality, it is the human condition. And it is the human condition, these underlying tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion. And that's where our harm, suffering, cruelty, difficulty, pain, any way you want to, um, any way you want to categorize it, that's where it comes from. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Very basic. It's just the unwholesome roots of this human condition. And so tonight, we've talked a lot about greed and hatred over the last few uh, months and now this month we're focused on this delusion part and since I only really got one opportunity to talk about it is tonight um, with you I mean I talked about it on Thursday night uh, the whole month but tonight this is my only chance to really talk about this delusion and I thought I would break it up into three ways you could practice with delusion because until we're able to practice with it and begin to see it, not as some 
a mental health problem, but as a, a, a conditioning, as part of the conditioning for being human, then we're always going to be trapped in this delusion. And so I want to talk a little bit about it as uh, uh, practicing with it one of three ways. So the first way we could practice with delusion is to begin to notice our preferences. Because delusion is preference. And, well, I shouldn't say delusion is preference because delusion is not the preference. It's the not seeing that we have a preference. That's more what the delusion is. So preference is, I like this and I don't like that. I want this and I don't want that. And that is a very natural aspect of being human. We can tell we're made up of a boatload of cells and every single one of those cells have their own preferences. So we got about a billion preferences going on. I was at a retreat the other couple of weeks ago and I was talking about how I had a preference of sweet tea. You know I like hot tea, black tea with cream and sugar. There's nothing better. And afterwards, this uh, yogi came up to me. Must be that yogi mind of retreat. She goes, Tori, I don't think you like the sweet tea. I think you have bacteria in your gut. That who likes the black tea with sugar. I said, <laughs> I almost died. I was so funny the way she said it. She was like trying to be helpful and she's blowing my preference for black tea with cream and sugar. But anyway, that's really the truth of it. All these preferences aren't necessarily coming from any one of us. Our parents could have had a preference. And when we were kids, we were raised within that preference. And so we think this is the right preference. So we live out of that preference. And everything in our lives is connected to wanting something, liking something, not wanting something, not liking something. That is this greed, hatred kind of paradox that we live in. But where you want to practice with this is you want to begin to get to know this. Because when we're not aware of our preferences, then we want something. And if we get it, we're just happy, lost in this idea that it'll always be like this. And then we are setting ourselves up for some pain when it doesn't work, when we don't get what we want. It's, it's almost like um, you want to practice seeing what happens in the mind when I get what I want, when I get what I like, and what happens in the mind when I don't. That instead of being caught in the preference itself, practice is about investigating what happens when these preferences show up in our mind. And the more you're willing to practice with the preference and it's a uh, 
presence or not, the more you're able to be less thrown off by the preference. So the chances that we're going to ever get rid of preferences, I mean, my gut is never going to say enough already with the sugar. It's just not going to happen. So since we're going to have preferences, there are times, though, when I really cannot tolerate the sugar or when I really can't get it, I may want it, but sometimes, you know, the morning goes as it goes and I can't really get my tea or things happen. And so there are times when we're not able to get our preferences and we want to be able to not have that preference control our reactivity. When our preferences are controlling our reactivity, that's when we can cause harm. When that delusion is happening, that's when we can suffer because the reactivity of not getting what we want, not getting what we like, puts us in the state of suffering. The reactivity of just sort of going to sleep when we get what we want or we get what we like, that's what sets us up for the inevitable not getting it in the future. And it sets us up for suffering. And so we want to learn to practice being okay whether the preference is granted or not. And even if we're not okay with the preference not being granted, could we at the very least be okay with being upset because we don't have the preference and not spill it out into the whole world because we're deluded and we don't know that what's driving all of this reactivity is because I didn't get some preference that I wanted. And we don't know that part because we don't know the preference. We just think it's wrong. Whatever it is, it's wrong. And we get trapped. So we're, the idea of this practice is to get us unstuck, untrapped out of these uh, diluted states. Which leads to the second way that we can practice with this delusion. It's what I call the four great distortions. Um, I think it's vipalas or what they're called. But the Buddha said that there were four deluded states of mind. I almost don't want to talk and just listen to the rain, really, truly. But, but for all the people online who can't hear this gorgeous rain up against the roof, I'm going to have to talk for you. So you, you might hear it outside your window, though. You do? Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? These four great distortions come because um, we have a mind that has its own perception of reality. Not our perception, not real perception on reality, but its own perception. 
And I think these perceptions make us convince us, I should say, of the safety and stability of life. And we need these sort of perceptions to help us feel like we are safer, um, more stable in life. But these perceptions are delusion. And that's where we get tripped up, just like with preferences. The first one is we misperceive things that are naturally impermanent. We perceive it as being permanent. Soon as something happens, we perceive it as permanent. So I get a great job. I perceive it as permanent. I don't start immediately thinking this job is going to end either with me leaving or them saying goodbye. But eventually this job is going to end. We don't perceive it like that. We don't perceive our new car as getting old and, you know, rusty and I don't want it anymore. I don't even like it. It's got a couple of dents in it and I'm through with it. Even though we just got rid of a car that we once thought was a great car, was going to be with us forever. No. We don't perceive impermanence. What we perceive is permanence. So when we feel bad, we think we're going to feel bad forever. When we feel happy, we think we're going to feel happy forever. And as soon as things change, we feel this kind of uneasiness. We feel unsteady because it's not permanent. But this permanence, actually, this sense of permanence is actually not the truth of the way things are. The truth of the way things are is that the world is impermanent. The second way that we stumble in this delusion is that we think things are reliable. They were reliable before. So we do something, we think it's reliable. Everybody here thinks they can go out to their car and drive. We think it's reliable, but it's not reliable. Engines fail, things don't work. What once was reliable may not be reliable this time. So we perceive reliability in things that are inherently unreliable because they're all conditioned and based on conditions. We take things personally, even though it's not personal, it's conditional or it's, uh, you know, really when we see in relation to people, we think people are somehow or another, it's all about me, how we relate to people. But oftentimes people relate to us because the way they're feeling, they're not even thinking about you. But if they, I, it's really noticeable as a teacher because I cannot tell you how many people think that I see them. I see them always and I know who they are. They know who I am, but 
I may have seen them once and don't remember them at all, but they look at me and treat me as if I should know who they are. Or they think that if I don't like connect to them, that somehow I have, um, I, they did something wrong, that I've, they have offended me. I mean, it's very, you walk a very thin line as a teacher, not offending people or not misstepping around people because of the prominence you have in their lives. And so this idea that you take something personal is so prevalent in this world that we live in that somebody walking by you and not even speaking to you can very much feel like, oh, they saw me. They looked right at me even though their mind is probably somewhere else. They looked right at me. So clearly they just don't care about me or they don't, I, they're mad at me or something's wrong. Or the way people talk to each other, all kinds of reasons why we do things. And yet we take the whole world permanently, personally, as if the world is personally related to us. And then, this fourth uh, delusion is that we expect the world to be lovely. We expect things that are naturally not lovely to be lovely. So we expect our bodies, which was destined to break apart. From the moment we were born, it was going to break apart. And we were going to be suffering all the time. And yet, when that break apart comes, we are shocked as if it shouldn't be that way. Or when people do cruel things or this cruelty happens as part of this human condition, we treat it as if it shouldn't be this way. I don't know if I told you guys, but I know I told Thursday night that I love this quote by Ajahn Chah that if it shouldn't be, it wouldn't be. That is such a profound statement. I have to think about that several times because I have a lot of it shouldn't be like that. And if it shouldn't be, then it wouldn't be. That is this profundity of living in a conditioned world. And when conditions come together, regardless of whether we want those conditions to be this way, it will be that way. This, uh, these four distortions that we live with also trip us up all the time. So practicing with this, we want to begin to question when we're really, um, I mean, you can mostly question when things are going awry. And maybe it's because I'm a, an aversive person. When things were difficult or something upset me, this is when I would practice. But I think for those of you that are greedy types, um, if you feel yourself pushing to get what you want, then, or you're wanting something to be beautiful or lovely, this also, this tension of trying to get what you want, um, this is also this um, place where you can practice. But the point is to practice, I think, at the edge of tension, the place where something feels 
uh, not quite the way you want it to be, or this, uh, this tension we have with life all the time that we walk around with. And I think that's why the Buddha said that the first noble truth, the first ennobling truth is suffering. It's if we can begin to not be afraid of our attention or not try to fix the tension and instead begin to question which of these distortions might be driving this tension. Then we can begin to see delusion itself and uh, maybe break away from it. And then the last one has to do with uh, ignorance. Um, you can see delusion as ignorance in general. So ignorance is, is the first kind of link in this uh, um, sort of this 12 links of conditionality that sets us up for suffering. It's kind of weird that we get set up for suffering, but we have a mental kind of um, structure that we follow right into the pain that we experience. But most of us only see the, the end results, which is some difficulty. We don't see all of the steps that led to me having this difficulty. And learning to practice getting interested in how this kind of pain came to me becomes a way to begin to see how we were basically set up into this and the delusion itself. Another way to think of this uh, delusion as ignorance is when we are on autopilot and we're not really paying attention mindfully about what's happening or just mindlessly going through life. It's kind of intertwined with what you could call habituated kama. Kama, the Buddha pointed to as action. So what you do, what you think, what you say, that kind of activity is what the Buddha referred to as kama. And so when our comma, when our words, when our thoughts, when our actions, behaviors are doing is habituated, it's in that place that we're operating out of ignorance. But when you begin to actually pay attention to the habit nature of your thoughts, your words or your actions, now you can begin to see this kind of ignorance that we kind of get trapped in. So what it means is everyone listening to this talk, everyone has certain mind states, certain thinking patterns that you think about all the time, just comes over and over and over and over. I can't remember the study that Anushka read one time. I just remember being shocked about how we actually as humans think about the same things over and 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 over for years, almost our whole life, we think about the exact same things. 
it seems like every time we're thinking about it, it's something different, something new. The mind will tweak it just a little bit. But in general, you can look at your mind over the course of a week and notice that you're thinking about the exact same things over and over and over. And the only reason why it lets up on that thing is somehow it's over with. And when it gets over, it stops thinking about it or dwells on it if you didn't do it the right way. It dwells on regret. So this, this habituated way, even in our language, we talk about the same things over and over and over and over and over. And we move our bodies in the exact same way. I used to do this um, um, Qigong movement. And I, I, it was so strange. Um, I, I, when I first, when I was practicing, I, 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 for a long time, I had so many uh, uh, destructive habits. And so, like many of you, trying to get past these destructive habits was just, it almost seems impossible. It seems like no matter how much I wanted to get away from the habits, the habits themselves never really changed. And so I had to come up with ways to help me um, set new habits or see the habitual nature of things. And so I put Dhamma principles to these Qigong moves that um, um, I had learned this 18 movements routine um, and I put these Dhamma movements to all these 18 movements. And one of the movements, it's called pushing big waves. And you just push out and you pull in and you push out and you pull in. And every morning I would do this push out, pull in, push out, pull in. And I called it, uh, instead of pushing big wave, which didn't make any sense to me because I'm not going to push a big wave. I called it this uh, pushing away like hatred, pushing away and this grabbing for greed. So greed and this hatred. And I remember going to the um, store one time. Uh, there was another one where you reach out it's like I called it generosity, just this reaching out and bringing it back in, reaching out, bringing it back in. And so um, I was going to the store one day and there was a guy, a clerk there, and he was doing something on the shelves. And um, either something was about to fall. I can't remember what it was, but I remember, I mean, I don't even think I helped the guy. I remember reaching out to offer some help or something. And I said, oh, that's generosity. I mean, I just, I don't think I actually helped him. I think I was so caught in the, oh, I know that feeling of generosity. And I probably just walked away and dude probably was like, what, what? I, 
doctor are going to help me. <laughs> but that, this learning to feel our actions and to feel what we're doing, just like watching our words, watching how many times you have that same argument about politics every day, watching how many times same thoughts, how many times do our bodies, do we move it in the exact same way and beginning to see what we're actually doing here. When we're conscious in mindfulness, we can begin to pay attention to what we're actually doing. And when we're conscious in this autopilot, in, in ignorance, there's still a consciousness. We just don't know it. That sends us the other direction. So actions that are motivated by a mind that consciousness is, can be based in both this ignorance and this wisdom. And when our actions are motivated by a mind um, that's based in ignorance or this delusion, it doesn't matter what we do to make changes. We just continue, we transfer that ignorance to another thing like guacamole. You just keep hitting the, the little moles that pack up, pop up and you just, doesn't matter. We keep whacking them and they keep popping up somewhere else. So instead, if we practice actually becoming aware of our actions, aware of this kind of habituated uh, comma, then we can begin to see what, um, what we're actually doing. I had a quote on Thursday I was sharing from uh, Trumpa Wimpase that said, eliminating negativity and cultivating positive act activities is not possible merely by changing our physical and verbal behavior. It can be done only by transforming the mind. I mean, it's kind of rich that it was Trumpa that said that, even though um, I definitely think this is what uh, the Buddha was pointing to. What he realized was that in a world where he was living, there were many, 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 many people who would go to great lengths to try to change their behavior and change their way of being. But they were never transforming the mind. And so they were always trapped in this forever kind of trying to change things. That's what he saw. He could go to... John states and he could go to, um, he could act accordingly, uh, even do great ascetic uh, feats, but none of that, because he never transformed his mind, none of that had any uh, bearing on his suffering. His suffering remained the same. So in some respects, um, what this uh, practicing with delusion as ignorance means that we begin to question and challenge some of our beliefs, some of these opinions, some of these assumptions that we're operating out of and consider whether or not it's really based in truth, in the reality of now, 
or is it based in something I learned years ago and I've just been doing the same thing? I've believed the same thing. This is what uh, Ajahn Chah said. I'll end with this here. He said that uh, our practice is simply to see the original mind. Just think about it for a minute. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions, to know what is the impression of the original mind. Think about when you were first sitting and we were pointing towards feeling into the felt sense of just being in the present moment. I don't know if you feel the same way, but the silence can be so beautiful when you first sit down and you first begin to come into this present moment. It's so beautiful. But learning to feel what it feels like to be present, to just be here in the present moment, getting that sense impression is what helps us recognize when we're not in the present moment. So we train the mind to know those sense impressions, not to get lost in them. We don't want to get lost in either, we get lost in the present moment when we stop recognizing we're in the present moment. And we end up loving the silence so much that now we like it. And we're in the preference of, I like it. I like it. I like it. And then we just let go. And we try to habitually stay in that present, in that liking the silence. Try to make it peaceful. Um, he says, let me say it again. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those self-impressions -impression, and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. In a way, what I think makes that so beautiful is in this massive psychological world. When we ever talk about um, delusion, suffering, difficulties, hatred, greed, there's this, this kind of feeling to me as if somehow or another, these are all the things we do wrong. This is all the stuff that's wrong about me and wrong about life. And we can get trapped in this sense that all practice is doing is telling us what we're doing wrong all the time. But this is really far from the truth. I'd say the greatest thing I ever did for myself was to be peaceful with what I saw, peaceful with my seeing, my delusion, my hatred, my greed. I got peaceful with it. 
And in the course of getting peaceful, I gradually begin to understand, oh, this is what greed feels like. I see, this is what hatred feels like. Oh, I see, I understand what this delusion is, what preferences feel like when I don't get my way. And when I get my way, I could begin to see the nature of practice, not because I fixed everything I saw that was wrong. We can't fix what we see that's wrong anyway. Most of it is so habituated that we can hate ourselves for what we see, but we can't stop ourselves from doing the very thing we don't want ourselves to do because we see it. Instead, you have to get very gentle, very peaceful with what you see. I think Dhamma does not work without the sense of non-self, without the sense of impermanence, that this too passes and it might come back around and it passes and it might come back around and it passes, that the impermanence, the unreliability of things and this non-self, this is not about me, it's not about mine, it's not about I. It's about seeing the human condition and beginning to recognize how to choose non-suffering over suffering. Because I know what suffering is and I know what non-suffering is. And I can learn to choose that if I'm just willing to be in the present moment. Steady myself, be peaceful, gentle with it. I can begin to see my way through. It's difficult. It takes a while. But it is not impossible. And it is not something that only a chosen few, you have to have a certain level of intellect or come from a certain level of money or have a certain level of resources to be able to do it. It's not like that. It has to do with our willingness to be peaceful with what we see, settled with the comma, settled with our behavior, and begin to have a little bit of, of humor, laughter, and joy around this human condition. Both the joy of it, the pain of it, all of it. So let's just take a moment. We'll sit here and, and then take some questions. Alrighty. So let's see if there's any 
comments or questions that you might have. Go ahead, Alan. Okay, thanks, Tuari. Yeah, thanks for thanks for the talk. It is um it's just amazing, you know. You can say you know, it's the purpose isn't to just fix ourselves and make ourselves perfect, but there's just this such a strong desire to land and such a strong desire like to figure this out, to make this complete to you know we learn about impermanence and we learn about no self but there's just this like oh this continual desire to like just or you know orient to land uh, to to get to a future and and when that's taken away that's just so disorienting you know it's just it's like um yeah, it's just like the mind doesn't know what to do with that, you know? Yeah, I do know. Um, there's, a, there's a thing called the four faults. These are like the four things about the Dhamma that we don't like. It's too close. So it's like right here, and I can't see it. It's too vast. It's way bigger than I can actually practice with. It's too easy. Um, you know, just be mindful in the moment. And I forgot the fourth one. I'm sitting here thinking, like, when I was listening to you, it's too close, it's too easy, it's too vast. I'll see if I can remember it by the, but this is this thing that you're talking about is what the, if you don't hold the Dhamma this way, you'll hold it like psychology. Like you really can fix yourself. You don't need to fix yourself. That in and of itself is the root of the problem. You're fine. Just the way you are, you're human just the way you are. And if you allow yourselves to be, if you allow yourself to be human, then the actual joy of the practice is that in any moment, you can both see your faults and accept them and let them go in the same moment. But in psychology, there is this requirement, this self-improvement idea. There's a requirement that we have to fix ourselves. And so that means, oh, maybe this is a really good way to explain it. When I was a prosecutor, I, uh, uh, I, my, I was a prosecutor when drug courts the, the courts that would help people who had addiction first begin to come out on the scene and go all over the place, all over the country. And these drug courts, um, defendants would come through and they would get their charges dismissed if they went and got clean and sober. And uh, they were run by the prosecutor's office. They were supported by the probation office. 
and the defense bar and the uh, uh, treatment facilities helped make this happen. So get this great program because everybody is going to graduate. You're going to be clean and sober. It's going to be great. And those first few years, nobody graduated. People couldn't graduate from these programs. And you got the prosecutor's office and the, and the probation office. Like, I don't know what's wrong. Everybody keeps using. And, and as soon as a person would get into the program, we're like, okay, we're behind you. We're supporting you. Come on, you can do it. We believe in you. And then they would use. And probation office would say, oh, you used, you got one more chance to use again, and then you're, you're out of the program. They used again, they're kicked out of the program. Everybody's kicked out of the program. So finally, these treatment facilities lost it. <laughs> they were just over the top. And they were like, we had to have these trainings where the prosecutor's office, the judges, probation officers, defense attorneys, we all had to go through this training to help us understand the nature of recovery. And the nature of recovery is not whether you use or not. It is a different understanding. It is the understanding of the time in between a relapse. So this assumption that the prosecutor's office and the probation office had, that as soon as someone used, they had violated their program, that assumption was wrong. It wasn't gonna work. And in the Dhamma, the practice of the Dhamma, if you have an assumption that you can fix yourself, it's not gonna work because the dumb is too vast. It's too, what it's asking of us is too complicated. It's too, it's too close and it's too easy. So it makes it almost impossible to do unless you're not trying to fix yourself. You're just trying to see something. And the Buddha never cared whether you saw the presence of something or the absence. Even in his instructions to Rahula, he was saying, it's not, I think I told you guys with the instructions to Rahula, like the point isn't to be perfect. The point is to reflect upon your conduct and notice what you notice. And that's it. And if you notice this behavior leads to a painful, unskilled, leads to a painful consequence, you can consider that this is unskillful. If it leads to a peaceful conclusion, ah, this is skillful. But the idea isn't to say, I'm only gonna do only skillful things because that would be foolish. We're gonna do unskillful things. But the idea is to use the practice to get interested in how we're moving through life and not come up with some conclusion that fixes us. Because if that were the case, then um, we'd all be monastics. I think monastics, you know, even with their lives, they have their own set of difficulties. 
but they spend their whole life surrounded by it. And even with your whole life surrounded by it, you still struggle. So what do you expect from someone who's a lay practitioner? We got way more impact and, and uh, things happening to us that throw us off our game all the time. All kinds of things show up that throw us off. And we have to learn to be with that. So this can't be about getting perfect. And the, as long as you hold that as your framing, you're right. It's never going to work. Because you might get it narrowed down. And then two days from now, you just tumble over into something else. So it has to be that this practice is just about practicing and beginning to see. And my talks are to encourage you to practice with whatever shows up. It doesn't really matter what shows up. The idea is to be willing to practice with it and to get interested in it. And the more interested you get in it, the more you'll practice with it. And the more you practice with it, the more you'll see and understand how things show up. And the more you see and understand how things show up, the less you're going to feel like you need to be fixed. You'll see it in other people. You'll see it in yourself. You won't be so harsh on other people. And you won't, you, you'll be more in line with understanding what Thich Nhat Hanh was saying. You'll see yourself in everything. You'll begin to see how someone's conditioning can bring them to a certain way and someone's conditionings can bring them to another way. You see what I'm pointing to? Yes, I do. Yeah. It can't, it can't be about um, fixing you. Because that, I just don't believe we're fixable. That's kind of a strange thing to say, huh? But I don't think we're fixable. I think the nature of the tendency for human existence is going to, it's not fixable, meaning that Just think of one social problem that enrages you. Just one. There might be many, but just think about one social problem that enrages you. Now, if you could go and fix that social problem so it didn't exist anymore, you would not have that rage. But the chances that you can actually fix it is pretty slim. So what that means is, you're going to have to live with that rage of this social problem that you can't fix. And the only thing you can do is not sort of have this impression that I'm not going to get enraged. You have to have a life that says, I can get enraged, so I need to be careful what I do when I get enraged. Do you see? That you can do so that you're not causing harm just because you're enraged about a social problem that you cannot fix, no matter how much you want to. 
but you don't have to go around yourself and cause just more harm because you don't like this. That's what we're, I think, as practitioners are working towards. We're working towards bringing a level of kindness in a world that is dominated by greed, hatred, and delusion. Okay. Thank you, Tora. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be long. Really, truly, we're going to have a new space soon <laughs> enough. Uh, thank you for taking my question. I hope it's not one about fixing myself, um, but I'm not sure. It's okay, even <laughs> if it is. At least that. it's about maybe seeing more clearly. Yeah. And with delusion, my uh, main problem is that um, I don't know well enough how to step out of myself. Yes. And so one of the things that you said that was really useful for that is just look at your patterns and like those habitual thoughts that come every day. And so I did. And the first thing knowing me myself that came out was I need to be working harder. So that's what I tell myself every day. Mm. And I'm starting to doubt whether it's true, but I have no way of knowing. It feels true. I know it where it comes from. It's yeah. kind of obvious. It comes from your family background. Yeah. But if you could speak to kind of like how to work with that uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, I think you could look at that. So the idea what Ajahn Chah was pointing to is when that thought comes up, I need to be working harder. You got to feel what does that feel like? And chances are you can feel the discomfort of this, right? No matter how hard I work, I still feel like I need to be working harder. And, I, and, I, and it feels painful. That is what we're trying to see. That painfulness is telling us not that something's wrong. It's telling us that somehow or another, this thinking process is at odds with reality and in that um reality uh when you, when you actually sit and be in reality it's a lot softer it's a lot more peaceful yeah. it's a lot more kinder and so somehow or another we have convinced ourselves that no pain no gain is the way to live in our lives. And so the, this pushing ourselves is the right way to get myself to do things. I don't really think there's anything wrong with pushing yourself. I, I don't think you have to um, stop pushing yourself. What you have to see is what happens if you just keep pushing and never get peaceful. And what happens when I take the effort to get peaceful, get in the present moment, and just allow myself the time to be peaceful? It doesn't mean you're going to give up on the pushing yourself, but you might begin to see the choice that you actually have as to whether or not 
you have to continually accept this relentless pushing. You don't necessarily have to accept that. But if you don't know, if you're not willing to actually see that mind state and see the peaceful mind state, you won't know how to make that choice. And so I think what the Buddha was pointing to was not deciding this mind state is better than this mind state. That's like preferences, right? This is the better way to be. I want to be peaceful. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be pushing myself. If you decide which mind state is better, then you're not really going to change anything. You want to actually begin to sense into, feel into which is better. So an example would be, I was on a retreat one time and it was a long retreat and I am usually a concentration practitioner. So the way I did concentration was painful, hard, forcing. You are going to stay with this breath. I don't care what you do. And I would just fight with myself to force myself to stay with the breath. Neck hurts, stomach hurts, shoulders hurt, but that's okay. No gain, no pain. No pain, no gain. So just let, we're staying with it. And on many retreats, I could get to a level of concentration by, by fighting it. And then I wanted to do nine bodies, which is a practice by Philip Moffat. And Philip Moffat is all about easy, soft, easy, soft, easy, soft, no tension, no striving. And I can remember falling into this gigantic vat of doubt because I couldn't figure out how to be easy, soft, easy, soft, and get anywhere. I'm easy, soft, easy, soft, but I'm not getting concentrated. And if I tried to get concentrated, I would feel the pain. And I'm like, no, easy, soft, easy, soft. I'm back and forth and back and forth. And I couldn't, the doubt itself was making the whole thing complicated. But I did not hate the doubt. I didn't hate the striving. I didn't hate the easy, soft, easy, soft. I didn't know what to do with it all, but I didn't hate all of it. I just kept practicing with it, practicing with doubt, practicing with easy, soft, practicing with striving, and it's too painful, and I don't like it. And I was on a three-month retreat, and so have, <laughs> halfway through the, the retreat, there is a transition day where the people who are leaving are going and the people who are staying for the three months, they stay. So six-weekers are leaving and there's a whole new set of six-weekers coming. When I woke up that morning, I sat on the bed and I said, oh, this is transition day. And something about that statement made the whole doubt go away. And I realized that the reason why I was having so much doubt is because I was in a transition and I didn't know how to concentrate with easy soft. Not that it's not 
Not that I'm not capable of concentrating with easy soft. I just don't know how to do it. So I, I, at first I was having all the tension because I thought ease, I thought the striving was the right way to concentrate. Easy soft was wrong. And since I'm trying to do this easy soft, I had all this doubt. When I realized that I just don't know how to do easy soft, but that I can get concentrated with easy soft, I just don't know how. Then I got interested in how do you get concentrated with easy soft? What do I do? And I begin to, instead of sort of um, try to shove my old way of believing into the current way, I let myself transition and practice something different that I didn't know how to get concentrated. So the point I'm trying to make is, and then concentration begin to come. The point I'm trying to make is, if you let work harder be right, or you let work harder be wrong, then in that preference, you've already set in motion. So instead, notice what happens when you say work harder. Notice what happens when you don't say work harder. Notice what happens when you don't even bring it up. Notice what happens when it's, you work harder and you actually think you accomplished something. Finally, I finally did something. And notice what happens when you say, don't work so hard and you don't do anything. Just notice what happens in all of it. Don't set a judgment that one's better than the other. And then you can begin to see what actually works for you and what doesn't. And you're less concerned with, is this the right way or is this the wrong way? Do you see what I'm pointing to? I'm so grateful for this answer. Yeah, yeah. it kind of blew my mind because, you know, uh, yeah, working harder actually doesn't feel that good, but it feels viscerally true. So That's I'm right. going to try the so other way. To see. Yeah. If maybe it is sometimes. Maybe there's some conditions when working harder is really supportive and some conditions when it's not supportive. And you might begin to notice what the conditions are where it's really painful. And it's less about the working harder and more about maybe the way you're saying it to yourself right. or the reason you're saying it. Could you just say one more time the name of the person who does the easy soft? I must try for myself. Oh, so. yeah. That's Philip Moffat, man. Philip okay. Moffat is my teacher. He is all about easy soft. No fight. <laughs> And I'm probably better for it because I started uh, studying with him. Thank you again. Yeah. All right. All righty. So that's it. I'm actually on time. And uh, thank you all for being here. So I really appreciate all the practice. And I'll see you when we're at our new space. That's when I'll see you. All right. Bye-bye.